This is Utah Survivors Podcast with your host, Brandon and Alex. In the world of true crime TV, we're bringing you the story straight from the survivors. Victims don't become survivors without the help of a community. So every week, we will have a 30-minute interview alternating between a survivor of crime and an organization that helps victims in similar situations. Due to the graphic nature of crime, many of the topics we discuss may be difficult for some listeners. If you are in crisis or triggered by these discussions, please reach out to local and national hotlines listed on our website, utahsurvivors.org. Welcome to another episode of Utah Survivors. And we are back with Deb, who is so part of, if you listened last week, part of her activism is the holistic side of this world of victim advocacy and everything. And she does yoga and is great when it comes to oils that can help soothe and weighted blankets and meditation and all the holistic stuff that, is that the right word? Holistic? You could say holistic. Yeah, that works. Hippie stuff? <laughs> Hippie better? <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of science under some of it. There yeah. is a lot of stuff that's complete total woo woo. Um, <laughs> but I prefer it, to call that placebo. Mm. I, I like woo-woo. Woo-woo's fun. It's fun to say. It's <laughs> like you could be in a, you know, Dr. Seuss book. Yeah. <laughs> so just because I think all of us get burnt out. I know I have tons of secondary trauma that has not been dealt with, mm-hmm. to be honest, you know, here, everyone hear my, my drama, uh, but, and there's days where your cases hit you harder or hearing mm-hmm. a story hits harder or you get triggered or I've been triggered by cases. Um, so kind of tell us from that end of like helping survivors, helping service providers, that whole saga. Well, I think one thing is that, um, you know, when we're working with victims, we talk about how it's okay to embrace their vulnerability. I don't think we talk about the vulnerability that gets brought up in the workers. Yeah. And that's also something that we have to really discuss. Um, so I, I do a lot of trainings on trauma stewardship specifically the book called trauma stewardship as well. Um, and I find that, that it's really important to kind of talk about the effects that this work has on the workers. Um, a lot of us come from a trauma past. Uh, and so how does that trauma past affect the work that we do? But also when you put this into a workplace situation and we are so focused on helping others that we really don't talk about the effects that it has on the helpers and we don't have good mechanisms set into place for the different agencies to actually deal with um, the trauma of their workers. So, I mean, individuals can have trauma, but organizations can also have trauma. And that's something in a field that really, as far as I know, there's been one tiny book written on organizational trauma. One tiny little thing. (laughs) One tiny little book. It's like 120 pages. It's gold. But (laughs) um, because when we think about just general work stuff, there's always stress. But then you add in things like, what if there's an event that happens at the office? Say you have a perpetrator comes in, it gets sort of violent, there's a gun shown, everyone's on edge, right? And it's like, we're, we're there, we focus on that response part of helping the victims, but then we don't actually come back and do that same response to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and any nonprofits felt this one when you've got people's um, entire pay that's based off of one grant and that grant is up for renewal or isn't renewed. Or you don't know because, for example, the federal government likes to wait until like after that grant period should have started to notify people whether they got the grant. That also creates trauma, right? So you deal with trauma and then you're in a 
an agency or in an organization that also has its own instability. But it's the idea that, oh, since you're working with victims, that you already have these, you already have it figured out. And we nobody don't. does. Nobody does. I can <laughs> tell I don't. I was going to say, a lot of our, uh, we have the statewide advocates and victims offices. I don't know. Suavo is kind of what we call it. But um, a lot of our trainings recently on those quarterly meetings has been about like self-care and uh, secondary trauma and even trauma within the organizations and things that we have. Mm-hmm. And obviously be, with the high turnover that shows that we are not equipped because otherwise we would stay in our jobs longer probably. Well, I think what the, the average career lifespan of a victim advocate is something like seven years. Ooh, I passed it. You have passed it. I'm an eight. <laughs> um, and I'm when I look average. at it, like that, that was about my, my average at, at UCASA as well. And I know that I was undergoing a whole lot of stress and everyone in my office was undergoing a whole lot of stress. And I didn't know I was spiraling downwards. And my office mates didn't know I was spiraling downwards. And we're all just dealing in this big tornado of angry trauma at each other. And nobody knew how to step in and to kind of do that sort of intervention. And so um, I mean, I was teaching and doing yoga before I left UCASA. Um, so I've been a yoga instructor for a little over eight years now. And and for a while, there was like a, a brief yoga for advocates class that we did on Tuesday mornings. <laughs> I love it. And like one or two people came because <laughs> none of us have time to go to anything. I, I had I I had crafted some things. <laughs> you I know, love it. it was it was like at seven fifteen. You were done by nine, and it was designed so that nobody would sweat, so that you could go directly into the office afterwards. Oh, that's awesome! Um, and it was free. Um, and we did that for like a year and a half. And uh, the executive director at UCASA at the time was very, she's like, no, let's do this. Let's, you know, this, you've got this skill. Let's, let's have you use that. Um, but I think one thing that I've learned from being in the field and then working with other agencies and seeing kind of how they manage or don't manage, which most of the time the agencies aren't managing the trauma of their workers, yeah, is that we get kind of caught into this cycle of, well, you should be doing self-care. And self-care has become a buzzword. Oh, gosh. Tell me and about it. we don't know what that means uh-uh. and how we're, how we're supposed to do it. So if you're already exhausted from the work that you're doing and then you're told you need to do self-care, it becomes another checklist on this never-ending list of things that you need to do. Yes. And so it becomes overwhelming and then people don't do anything. It all is overwhelming to me, honestly. Like my self-care is very minimal and needs to be better is all most of us need to be. And then like to think about like institutional self-care or trauma Mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed. It just makes me want to say, shut up. (laughs) Is that a nice way to put it? Like, I can't handle this. You're like, you want me to do what now? I'm Uh supposed to meditate. Yeah. So I get a lot of people. So I teach yoga out of my home. I have a teeny tiny little yoga studio. Yes. (laughs) So um, if you're looking for me, it's empower yoga and wellness. Um, Ooh, we'll put that on the website. Yeah, we'll we'll put all this kind of stuff on the website, including Sweet. the book that you mentioned about organizational trauma. And you yeah, know, it's yeah, the I only can, one. And we I have a whole list of materials that I can send you that I Ooh, give out please. to people um, because I'm constantly looking for different resources. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a tendency to get stuck in the single story, and that also happens with things like self care. And I've had so many people come into my class, and they're like, "Well, my doctor says I need to meditate," and I'm like, "Okay." Cool. Why? 
Yeah. And I get that too. They're like, oh, my doctor says I need yoga. I'm like, okay, why? And they give me this look like, what do you mean why? They say I need this. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. You know, you could tell me what you want to about your health, but why would your doctor say you needed to do yoga? Do you need to have more of a physical practice? Do you need to work on, you know, stress reduction? And for the most people, they just don't know. Or they're told that they need to meditate and they have no idea how to meditate. Like, we don't automatically learn that. And there's different methods and practices for meditation. So on the one front, you've got mindfulness meditation, which is bringing yourself into your body at that current moment, which can be very, very helpful for a lot of folks if they are in a current trauma state. So being able to bring you back into your body, back into the present, Mm. taking you out of whatever things going on in your head. So mindfulness can be very helpful. But other forms of meditation, there are forms of meditation where they kind of help you work out problems and thinking processes. And then there's other forms of meditation that are really just supposed to kind of work on that, you know, transcendental front where you are kind of having an exploration with the divine. And so there's a whole bunch of different methods of meditation out there. And it's not just sitting cross-legged underneath a tree and, and saying, Om. Yeah. Um, and so one thing that I've been really trying to do when I work with people and I, one reason why I teach out of yoga out of my own home is that I want to keep my classes small because I want to have that individual, um, discussion with people because everybody is different on a given day and, um, and people are coming to things differently and I want to help people explore possibilities rather than just saying, okay, well, we're going to sit here in a cross-legged position for an hour and you're just going to clear your mind. Like I suck at that. I hate meditation. I'm not going to, like, I know what you're saying, but I hate it. There's Every a, time I've tried, I'm like, this fuck freaking sucks. <laughs> well, that's going to be cut. Um, there is some, there is some pop culture references that come to mind that when you were talking about, oh, it's not just like you sit there and whatever. The first one that pops to mind is an episode of 30 Rock where Alec Baldwin like is trying to learn how to meditate and he just goes, okay, meditate. And then like, he's like already in like a perfect state of meditation. He's like, wow, you're so good at this. Yeah, I know. Right. All right. And then the other one, uh, and he has like a whole conversation with himself and finds out what he needs to do to fix his life or whatever. But uh, the other one is on Parks and Rec um, with uh, Chris Traeger, who everyone knows is like the overly excited, very happy guy. He's Everything is excellent always, all the time. He kind of is trying to befriend one of the parks managers who is very grumpy and angry all the time and they go to do uh to meditate and they walk in and he just like sits there and after he's like i just i don't get it i just sat there for 45 minutes i didn't think about anything (laughs) and then he talks to this person about he's like how did you get to that state of mindfulness he's like what do you mean he's like it takes me a long time to get to where i'm not thinking about anything you your mastery of your mind is amazing and so like like people don't realize that like it really does take a lot of work to get to that point because of how funny it's portrayed in like mm-hmm. pop culture. Most people think like, oh, it's so easy or whatever, but That's it's, why I hate it's definitely it. not. It's too hard. <laughs> well, and there's a lot of different modalities, right? Uh-huh. So um, when we talk about meditation, it doesn't have to be sitting up because one, after a while that gets painful if you don't have the musculature built up to sit straight up for that long. Um, or if you're like me that constantly needs to move like every five seconds, like, I'm, yeah. I'm very fidgety. Um, but there are other methods like walking meditations. 
So I, I did a walking meditation workshop where we went through mindfulness walking. Then we went through walking meditations where you're just trying to work out some issue that's on your brain. And um, there's different methods to doing that. There's forms of dance that are meditative. Tai Chi is an entire meditation form in itself, and it's a martial art, right? So there's different things that you can work on. Um, because not one thing fits for everybody. And that's my problem with the self-care movement is that it's the idea that meditation works for everyone and meditation only looks like this. Mm -hmm. So there's a form of meditation that I teach regularly called yoga nidra. It's called the yoga of sleep. And basically what you yoga do, sleep? it's great. You just build yourself a little nest because <laughs> you're just not going to move for the better part of an hour. And I take you through some different breathing exercises, some different visualization exercises. And it's the idea that, you know, you're, you're calming your physical body and then you're calming that emotional side of your body. And then it also gives you the opportunity to kind of go into that mental space of, you know, visualization and kind of whatever sort of weird journey that your brain takes you on. Um, that might be doable. It's fun. A lot of people seem to really like, I, like it. I, I, I know some people I need to sign up for this. So, <laughs> Yeah. And it's just, and the thing is, is that it is a full hour of meditation you're doing, but you're not sitting up. You're not chanting. You're just in this comfortable little safe nest that you've built for yourself. And you're letting your body rest so that your, your mind can travel. Oh, I like it. And so um, same thing with yoga. A lot of people, when they think of yoga, they think of gym yoga, which is like this super power hot room yoga where everyone's doing handstands and they're like human pretzels. Um, and that's not what yoga is. My sister's <laughs> a yoga instructor and she was nine months pregnant and we went and did hot yoga on the beach in Costa Rica and she's like bending and I can barely touch my toes and I felt so out of shape. I was like, toes, come here. Oh. <laughs> So, and there's different, there's different styles of, of yoga to do. I mean, most of the time when we think of yoga, especially in the West, we're thinking of um, movement in the postures. Yeah. When, when you look at the whole philosophy of yoga, those postures is, um, there's four main branches of yoga. And then one of those branches has eight little things in it. And the postures is one of those eight little things. So there's so much more to this yoga thing. So there's, uh, there's a karma yoga, which is actually, uh, it's a yoga of service. And a lot of, that's basically, it's advocacy 101 when you start looking at it. So advocates are actually practicing a form of yoga just by the work that they're doing. And I think when you can start talking about self-care, talking about wellness and looking at the more holistic approaches, sometimes these different philosophies help you put things in perspective. Because we know of people who work with trauma or people who have trauma, it's hard to see the big picture sometimes. And so being able to find that as an option can help. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What about, <laughs> what about like, okay, because I like essential oils and Brandon will say this is hoopla. I did not ever I, say they are hoopla. <laughs> well, My will, wife uses them. I still. I like the peppermint one because it smells good. And like if you put it on your head, it makes your head all tingly. It's, that's, that's pretty much it. What helps with trauma and grounding yourself? Well, one thing, uh, when I do presentations, I actually have a little handout that I that I call the self-care box that I ask people to make. And so it's kind of like a box of things that appeal to all of your five senses. And we know that when someone's in, in a trauma state, right, that all of their memory really has to do with their senses. So if they haven't had, you know, the required sleep cycles to start to piece together the logical stuff that happened to them, what they remember is how things smelt, how things felt, tasted. Um, and so 
when someone is in that trauma state, if you can bring them back to their actual senses, that can help start to calm them down. It sets them back into their body in that more, more mindfulness practice. And then they can come and bring themselves back to where they are fully. So smell can be really powerful. So I do use essential oils all the time in my classes because I'm trying to create a mood. But uh, whenever I have a new student, I always ask them, you know, do you have any smells that are triggering? Um, and for the most part, that's a question they've never been asked. <laughs> but I do have one or two students that are like, no, I can't handle the smell of this or the smell of that. And it's things I use, regularly. like I use peppermint a lot. Peppermint and rosemary is my favorite. Um, so I try to be very mindful of the use of smell because, you know, if, for example, if you have a smell memory of making one of those oranges where you stuck the cloves in to make a Christmas orange. Yeah. Right. So if you have good memories of that, having that smell in the room while you're trying to do a relaxation practice can be wonderful mm -hmm. and can make you feel safe. But if your dad hucked the orange at your head, that smell would not be good. Yeah. So it is, but it, it is asking, you know, students to be very, you know, are you okay? Do you know yeah. what smells trigger you and what they don't trigger you? Mm -hmm. So I use essential oils primarily for so, mood creation. <laughs> so mood creation. Is there any smells that you said you like peppermint and something? Rosemary. rosemary. Peppermint and rosemary, my favorite. Your favorite. And is there any like reasons why? Because everyone's like, go get lavender. And I love lavender. Like that's one of my favorite smells. I am not a lavender person. <laughs> I love lavender. My wife is a lavender person. Yeah. Max is like, our house always smells like lavender, mom. And I'm like, it, it's amazing. See, and lavender smells like those weird little old lady bath soaps that are like pastel in color and they, they're shaped like a flower and nobody uses them, but they seem to be in every... The fancy soap. Right. That's what I, mean, I call I it. I never denied fancy that soap. I was not an old lady. <laughs> so, might go along with my lavender. I uh, When I was living in Vermont during law school, we had this really old house that always smelled like mothballs because mm -hmm. there was antique stuff being stored in different rooms of the house. And so Carly was like looking up anything that will get rid of, that will have the same effect as mothballs, but won't smell like mm -hmm. mothballs. And lavender apparently is has the same effect, but it doesn't so smell make bad. it more of a case for old ladies? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love old ladies. I do have my hidden 80-year-old woman inside me, but she does not like the bath soaps. <laughs> so, like, with the essential oils, because I've read that, like, citrus really helps. Like, that's one thing that some self-care person said, like, have citrus essential oils going. It'll make you less crazy. Um, citruses in general, they are... Um, I mean, if you if you think on a basic level, like most people, when they smell citrus, they kind of feel happier. Yeah. Um, so uh, whereas like peppermint can be very energizing. Um, I like peppermint and raspberry, or not raspberry. Ooh, that that would be sounds weird. gross. Um, I, I like it because it feels kind of clean and astringent. Uh -huh. Lemon and spearmint, however, is really an interesting mix. Hmm. So. I think in Utah, <laughs> I think this... A conversation is especially appropriate in Utah, where we're like the essential oil capital of the world. I feel I like, mean, but we do have a you're Deterra just road. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have all sorts. I mean, there's I know of five essential oil like factories within, or at least I don't know if they're factories, but the 
corporate headquarters within 10 miles of my house so now we just need to call doTERRA to sponsor this and actually pay us i actually don't do anything with (laughs) with their stuff like i i buy separate essential oils and i you know research different you know different smells and kind of what they're supposed to do because there is a long history about essential oil usage Mm -hmm. just like there is a lot a long history of uh, different herbal usages Mm -hmm. and so i try to kind of go back to Basics. You know, actual the actual basics, yeah, mm-hmm. which I like because I think that's what they're intended for, right? Not yeah. to not for all the hoopla, yeah. The- like I don't believe in ingesting them because seriously, how how well are those particular essential oils made? Are there additives in them? Yeah. Um, and so. there's also things about like the first or second or third strain with it. Cause you know, first strains are always more powerful and potent, but then a lot of essential oils today are like third strain where they're not either mm-hmm. like the stuff is picked too early or picked too late, or it's like the leftovers of the leftovers and yeah. things like that. And so, but I do a meditation thing. It's just like a brief little breathing exercise when I do trainings on trauma stewardship and I use peppermint as I walk around the room so that people can, because most of the time with peppermint, it's a pretty benign smell, actually. Most I've only had one person who's ever had a problem with peppermint. It's most of the time they're thinking of candy, um, and then that's what they... Clears up your nose real good, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, from Europe, you don't use uh, peppermint candy, so there's not that mm-hmm. sort of... Peppermint is the smell of medicine, in at least in England. And so, so if you're trying to use that with someone who is from Europe, uh, peppermint is not going to be as calming. Interesting. <laughs> So with like advocates and victims who are trying to get grounded, trying Mm -hmm. to get through their trauma and do the hoopla of like self-care word, like trying to minimize the trauma effects, what is something that you found with working with people that would be helpful that's something simple to implement? I think in this may not be the, the quite the exact tip that you were looking for. <laughs> I don't know if I was um, looking for anything. But to realize that this is a practice. Mm-hmm. And so if you've ever tried to learn an instrument, there are days where you you play the wrong note. And so what do you do? You try it again. Or throw right? it against the wall. Or throw it against the wall. Most people don't do that, though. They still have a moment of like, okay, I need to take a step away. Then I'm going to try this again. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you see it as an act of practice, that means that it gives you space to try different things. So say you went to one meditation class and it did not work for you. It doesn't mean that there isn't a form, another form of meditation that may work for you. So you have to view it as a, as a form of practice. So and don't be as stubborn as me. Well, I think a lot of people, because we get stuck in the checklist of things we have to do, yeah. when it doesn't work for us, we think we have failed. And you can't fail at self-care, but I think there's a lot of us who feel like we do because... I beg to differ. You can <laughs> fail at self-care. Like, by not doing anything, you're failing. Well, I, I think we also need to have, like... I, I think when we look at self-care, it's really kind of understanding our own boundaries. Yeah. Because a lot of people who are not good at self-care... Um, don't have boundaries. Yes. And so when we can start to do that evaluation, we can be like, <laughs> that's a great face. <laughs> um, boundaries. <laughs> boundaries. Yeah. What are boundaries? I don't know. Uh, I've never heard this word. So if, uh, like, like I've said before, there's a lot of victim advocates and groups and organizations that listen to this podcast. If they want to reach out to you to try to help get, get those tools to other people in their organization, how can they get a hold of you? Um, I do have a Facebook page that I occasionally remember to update. <laughs> so it's uh, Empower Yoga and Wellness. Um, and I can give you different information. Yeah. 
Um, and most people who just know me can just send me an email um, and I can give you all my contact information. Perfect. We'll put that um, on the website. Yeah, because it's, it's me that you're getting. It's not like a whole bunch of other people. It's not a big old thing. I know I'm never going to make a ton of money from this. In fact, I, uh, one thing I believe that I firmly believe that like uh, yoga and meditation that needs to be accessible to people, not only in how their body is, um, but also financially. And so I try to keep my rates really, really low. I know that there's a huge yoga community here and there's a lot of different choices, but a lot of times those places don't feel welcoming unless you fit a particular body type. And for me, I'm well, cause you can't see me voice for radio, um, <laughs> but I identify as fat. I'm a large woman and I can still do a lot of yoga poses. And, um, I think it's important to be able to find other places that don't make you feel like you have to conform. And I try to create that sort of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's one reason why I have the yoga done inside my home right now. We're all online, but, um, when bringing people into my home, I was able to actually have a very controlled trauma informed space so that everybody knew where the exits were. They, they knew that the doors were locked. They had the control. Um, and they didn't have to worry about a whole bunch of people judging them. It could just be one or two other people in the class with you. And I'm there watching you, checking in on you, helping you kind of monitor that emotional space that we go through. Because sometimes in a yoga class, you know, you get to the, the last pose of yoga, it's called Shavasana. And a lot of people will cry just because they're finally releasing. And to be able to cry and release in a safe space is you don't feel that way in a lot of studios. So I try to create an atmosphere where people can be vulnerable and that those vulnerabilities are celebrated and acknowledged rather than seen as just another thing you have to manage. I like it. Perfect. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for coming again. Double we really appreciate it. You got a it. lot of me. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, and we will see you all next week. So glad you could join us this week and be with us as this survivor has opened up their heart and story in the hope that it may inspire someone. Information about this week's interview can be found on our website, utahsurvivors.org. Trauma creates change you don't choose. Healing is about creating the change you do choose. This program is supported in part by grant number 18W. 2025 from the Utah Office for Victims of Crime, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Office on Violence Against Women, the U.S. Department of Justice, or the Utah Office for Victims of Crime. Our theme song is DNA by Najee featuring Amber Lynn.